Hello there, and welcome back to part two of the last episode of the first series of What You May Have Mythed. Last week, we began The Legend of the War of Troy, and this week, we finish it. Obviously. but it is still going to be an action-packed episode. If, as always, you have a question that you fancy firing at me, then you can do so by either emailing me at themythspodcast at gmail.com or tweeting me on at mythedpodcast. We finished last week's episode at a rather tragic point for one of the Greek heroes, the death of Achilles' best friend and partner, Patroclus. After his death... Achilles, who was on strike from the Greek army due to Agamemnon's treatment of him, returned to the field of battle and pledged that he would not rest until Hector lay dead in the dirt. And that is where we pick up today. Death of a Hero Achilles, garbed in his splendid armour from Hephaestus and rallying soldiers to his side, led the army against the Trojans. So inspired were the Greeks that they made short work of the Trojans and set them running. Achilles urged the soldiers on, and near the gates of the city he came face to face with Hector. But here, for the first time in his life, Hector's courage deserted him. The sight of Achilles in his dazzling armour and his unquenchable anger was too much. Hector turned and ran for his life. Thrice round the walls of Troy Achilles pursued him, in sight of old King Priam and Queen Hecuba, who had mounted the walls to watch the battle. During each lap of the city, Hector tried to reach the city gates, so that his soldiers might open them for him, or protect him with their arrows, but Achilles repeatedly forced him into the open plain. To his fellow Greeks he called, Do not touch him! He is mine to kill! Let him run like the coward he is! If you have ever been to the western Mediterranean, you will know just how hot it can be. After the third lap of the city, Hector was exhausted. He stopped his running outside the Scaean gate and turned to face Achilles. My lord Achilles, he said, I have been chased by you three times round my city without daring to stop and let you come near, but now I am going to run away no longer. I have made up my mind to fight you man to man and kill you or be killed. But let us first make a bargain. You with your gods for witness, I with mine. No compact could have better guarantors. If Zeus allows me to endure and I kill you, I undertake to do no outrage to your body that custom does not sanction. All I shall do, Achilles, is strip you of your splendid armour. Then I shall give your corpse to the Greeks." Will you do the same for me? Achilles smirked. You are mad to talk about pacts. 
Lions do not come to terms with men, nor does the wolf see eye to eye with the lamb. They are enemies to the very end. With that, Achilles launched his spear at Hector. In his rage, he missed, but was quick to draw his sword. The two heroes clashed before the walls of Troy, the Greeks watching from the field, King Priam and Queen Hecuba from the walls. It was a desperate encounter, but it was not to be for Hector, who succumbed to his powerful adversary. With his last dying breath, the Trojan hero said, Pause before you act, in case the angry gods remember how you treated me. When your turn comes and you are brought down at the Scaean Gate in all your glory by Paris and Apollo. Achilles' sword found its way through Hector's armour and into his chest, cutting his last words short. He then bound the lifeless corpse of his fallen foe to his chariot and dragged it three times round the city walls, then onwards to the Greek camp. Achilles now solemnised the funeral rites in honour of his friend Patroclus. The dead body of the hero was carried to the funeral pyre by the Myrmidons. His dogs and horses were then slain to accompany him in case he should have need of them in the realm of shades, and Achilles, in fulfilment of his savage vow, slaughtered twelve brave Trojan captives who were laid on the funeral pyre. When all was consumed, the bones of Patroclus were carefully collected and encased in a golden urn. Another one bites the dust. A new ally of the Trojans now appeared on the field in the person of Memnon, the Ethiopian, who brought with him powerful reinforcements. The Trojans were delighted, as would you be if you knew of Memnon's reputation. Memnon was the first opponent who had yet encountered Achilles on an equal footing, for, like the great hero himself, he was the son of a goddess and possessed also, like Achilles, a suit of armour made for him by Hephaestus. Still in his monumental rage after the death of his beloved Patroclus, however, Memnon was slain almost as easily as Hector had been. The triumph of Achilles did not last long, though. Intoxicated with success, he attempted at the head of the Greek army to storm the city of Troy. Obviously the Greeks were pretty happy to follow him as he had just slain two of their greatest warriors, but then Hector's last words, the premonition he had uttered before his death, came to pass. Paris, Hector's brother, aimed a well-directed arrow at Achilles. With the aid of Apollo, it pierced his vulnerable heel and he fell to the ground, fatally wounded, on the same spot as Hector before the Scaean Gate. But though face to face with death, he managed to raise himself from the ground and continue slaying Trojans who came too close. It was not until his arms and legs became heavy and slow that the enemy were finally aware that the wound was mortal. With the combined efforts of Ajax and Odysseus, the body of Achilles was dragged away to avoid desecration and carried to the Greek camp. Weeping bitterly over the untimely fate of her gallant son, Thetis came to embrace him for the last time. The funeral pyre was then lit and the voices of the muses were heard chanting his funeral song. When, 
According to the custom of the ancients, the body had been burned on the pyre. The bones of the hero were collected, enclosed in a golden urn, and deposited beside the remains of his beloved Patroclus. In the funeral games celebrated in honour of the fallen hero, the property of her son was offered by Thetis as the prize of victory. But it was unanimously agreed that the beautiful suit of armour made by Hephaestus should be awarded to the man who had contributed the most to the rescue of the body from the hands of the enemy. Popular opinion unanimously decided in favour of Odysseus, and this verdict was confirmed by the Trojan prisoners who were present during the battle. Unable to endure the slight, Ajax lost his mind and, rather ungraciously, killed himself. My Kingdom for a Horse For ten years, King Agamemnon and the men of Greece laid siege to Troy, and still they were no nearer in destroying it. It was then, when morale was at its lowest and it looked certain that the war could not be won, that Odysseus, winner of Achilles' armour and king of Ithaca, spoke. Hold on, lads, he said. I've had an idea. What about a horse? A big one that we can hide in. Maybe, oh, I don't know, try and trick the Trojans into bringing it into the city. Then we jump out and burn the place down. How big a horse are we going to need to get the whole army in? No, that's a stupid idea. Besides, we're nearly there. Yes, I know we've lost Achilles, not that I'm overly saddened by his death, but they have lost both Hector and Paris, said Agamemnon. The Trojans had indeed lost their hero who had killed Achilles earlier that week, mortally wounded in the field by Philoctetes. Obviously it wouldn't be big enough to get the whole army inside it, that would be ludicrous. No, hear me out. If we made it big enough for, say, thirty of us, we could open the gates from the inside, allowing you to enter the city. We've got plenty of wood from the ships that were burnt. Hmm, I'm not sure. There's an awful lot that could go wrong, Agamemnon replied. What if they don't take the bait? What if they burn it where it stands? What if... Look, interrupted Odysseus. We've been here nearly a decade. Any much longer and the chances of us ever seeing home again are going to disappear. I, for one, want to win this war and return home to my wife. I'm willing to take the risk and attempt a new tactic, because clearly your idea of laying siege to Troy hasn't worked. Agamemnon was on the verge of responding, but his brother Menelaus forestalled him. I agree with Odysseus. He's right. We've been here too long. This way he can let the army in, and I can grab Helen, kill her, and then sail home. I will join him in the horse. Given the pact that had been agreed when Menelaus had married Helen, Agamemnon was forced to agree. The Greek army built an enormous wooden horse inside which they could conceal a select force of soldiers. When the horse had been finished and the soldiers in place in its belly, the rest of the Greek army appeared to abandon them on the beach. In reality, they had sailed only as far as the island of Tenedos, not too far away. I sense a trap. As you can imagine, there was great joy in Troy when they were told that the Greeks had fled. The gates were opened at last, and the people went out to see the plain and the camp their enemy had left. 
Here they set the battle in array, and there were the tents of the fierce Achilles, and there lay the ships, said one boy. Then they saw the great wooden horse. Thymotes, who was one of the elders of the city, was the first who advised that it should be brought within the walls and set in the citadel. But Capis and others with him said that it should be drowned in water or burned with fire, or that they should pierce it to see whether there was anything within. Uh-oh. Was Agamemnon's concern going to become a reality? The people were divided, some crying one thing and some another. But then forward came the priest Laocon. What madness is this? You think that the men of Greece are indeed departed, or that there is any profit in their gifts? Surely there are armed men in this mighty horse, or haply they have made it that they may look down upon our walls. Touch it not, for as these men of Greece, I fear them even though they bring gifts in their hands. Whilst this debate was going on, the Trojans dragged forward a man who claimed to have been left behind by the Greeks. What place is left for me? For the Greeks suffer me not to live, and the men of Troy cry for vengeance upon me, he cried. Given the rather unfortunate predicament this chap found himself in, they took pity and asked him to tell them where he came from and what he had to tell. Turning to King Priam, he said, The Greeks have fled to their homes, being weary of the war, but still the stormy sea hindered them. When this horse that you can see had been built, we heard a dreadful thunder roll from one end of the heaven to the other. The Greeks sent one who should inquire of Apollo. Apollo answered them, saying, Men of Greece, even as you appeased the winds with blood when you came to Troy, so must you appease them with blood now that you wish to return home. The men were trembling, wondering who the doom should fall on. Odysseus drew forth Calchas, the seer, into the midst and ordered him to say who it was that the gods would have as a sacrifice. But ten days did the soothsayer keep silent, saying that he would not give any man to death. But then, for in truth the two had planned the matter beforehand, he spoke, appointing me to die. And to this thing they all agreed, each being glad to turn to another that which he feared for himself. But when the day was come and all things were ready, the salted meal for the sacrifice and the garlands, I burst my bonds and fled and hid myself in the sedges of a pool, waiting till they should have set sail. But never shall I see country or father or children again, for doubtless of these will they take vengeance for my flight. Only do you, O king, have pity on me, who have suffered many things, not having harmed any man. And King Priam did indeed take pity on him. He loosened the bindings, saying, Whoever you are, forget your country. Henceforth you are one of us. But tell me true, why did they make this huge horse? Who contrived it? What seek they by it? to please the gods, or to further their siege. Then the man said, Calchas told us that we must cross the seas again and seek at home fresh omens for our war, and this indeed they are doing even now and will return at some point. 
He also told us to make the likeness of a horse, to be a peace offering to Minerva, and make it so huge of bulk that the men of Troy may not receive it into their gates, nor bring it within their walls and get safety for themselves thereby. For if the men of Troy harm this image at all, they shall surely perish. But if they bring it into their city, then shall Troy lay siege hereafter to the city of Pelops, and our Greek children shall suffer the doom which we would fain have brought on Troy. The priest, Laocoon, remained unconvinced, however. Burn it! This is surely a trick by the Greeks. We must burn it to be sure. Something remarkable then happened. Clearly angry at this attempt to destroy the horse, the goddess Athena caused an earthquake. Not a mighty one that would destroy the city, but a very specific one directly around Laocoon. The force of this very precise earthquake instantly blinded the priest. Watching this, King Priam instantly believed that Laocoon was being punished for his desire to burn the horse and told his men to take it. So the men of Troy drew the horse into the city. And that night they kept a feast to all the gods with great joy, not knowing that the last day of the great city had come. Fall of a City But when night was at its fullest, and the men of Troy lay asleep, from the ship of King Agamemnon there rose up a flame for a signal to the Greeks. As the signal went up, the Greeks manned their ships and made their way across the sea from Tenedos. The sea was calm, and there was enough moonlight to show their way. Inside the city, Sinon, the abandoned Greek, opened a secret door that was in the great horse, and the chiefs issued from it and opened the gates of the city, slaying those that kept watch. Now, if you remember back to episode 3, you will recollect that Aeneas had gone in search of a new place to rebuild Troy after a vision of the deceased Hector came to him. Well, now is the time that this occurred. Hector came to Aeneas as he slept. No, not in a creepy way. It was Hector's self that he seemed to see but not the Hector he had seen coming back rejoicing with the armour of Achilles or setting fire to the ships, but the Hector who lay in the dirt after Achilles dragged him at his chariot wheels, covered with dust and blood, his feet swollen and pierced through with thongs. Hector said to Aeneas, Fly, son of Venus, fly and save yourself from these flames. The enemy is in the walls and Troy will utterly perish. If any hand could have saved our city, this hand had done so. You are now the hope for Troy. Take her gods and flee with them for company, seeking the city that thou shalt one day build across the sea. It was the alarm of battle coming nearer and nearer that woke Aeneas from sleep. He climbed upon the roof and looked onto the city. And as he looked, the great palace of Diphobus sank down in the fire, and the house of Ocelagon blazed forth till the sea by Sigium shone with the light. Without entirely knowing what he was doing, he donned his armour, thinking that he might yet win some place of vantage, or at least might avenge himself on the enemy, or find honour in his death. 
Well, we know that doesn't happen. But as he passed out from his house, there he met Panthus, the priest of Apollo, who cried to him, O Aeneas, the glory is departed from Troy, and the Greeks have the mastery in the city. Armed men are coming forth from the great horse of wood, and thousands also swarm in at the gates which Sinon hath treacherously opened. As he spoke, others came up to him under the light of the moon. He was joined by his friends, to whom Aeneas said, If you are minded, my brothers, to follow me to the death, come on, for how things fare this night we shall see. The gods who were the stay of this city have departed from it, yet we can die as brave men in battle. As ravening wolves rush through the mist seeking prey, so they went through the city, slaying every Greek they met. And for a while the men of Greece fled before them. Aeneas, not being a silly man, decided the best way to slay as many Greeks as possible was to play them at their own game. Halting his comrades after they had slaughtered a small force, they stripped their own armour off and replaced it with that of their fallen foes. Going disguised among the Greeks, they slew many, so that some again fled to the ships and some were fain to climb into the horse of wood. But then men came dragging by the hair from the temple of Minerva the virgin Cassandra. One of Aeneas' friends, Corobius, had hoped to marry Cassandra. He could not stand the sight of her being manhandled and threw himself upon the Greeks that had hold of her. The others followed him, and this was where their sneaky plan backfired. On the roof of the temple stood Trojan warriors, and they cast spears down against the disguised countrymen, thinking them to be enemies. The Greeks also, being angry that Cassandra should be taken from them, fought more fiercely, and many of them, whom Aeneas and his friends had sent running, came back against them and prevailed. Eventually, all his companions bar two slain, Aeneas heard a great shouting from the palace of King Priam and hastened there at once. Here the battle was its most ferocious. Greeks were climbing the walls on ladders. The men of Troy were on the battlements using mortar from the walls in an attempt to repel the Greeks, but they were just too many. The city was lost. Aeneas, knowing a way out of the city and remembering Hector's plea to him, fled the carnage and sought refuge on Mount Ida. Yes, the same place that Paris had been left as a baby. Meanwhile, back inside the city, Menelaus now sought Helen in the royal palace, who still retained all her former beauty and fascination. The war had been started because of her, and now Menelaus could finish it, once and for all. He stormed into her chambers, sword at the ready. But after seeing her divine beauty for the first time in a decade, he softened. He could not hurt her. It was then that a remarkable reconciliation took place, and she agreed to accompany her husband on his homeward voyage. Troy was a ruin. The city was ashes, as were the people who had not been taken as slaves or wives. From their ships the Greeks could see the great palace of Priam crumbling, the king himself lying dead inside it. Hector's widow, Andromache, 
had been discovered taking refuge at the top of a tower, protecting her son, Astinax. Fearing the son of Hector and who he might become one day, the Greeks tore the baby from his mother's arm and threw him from the tower. Andromache herself was given as a wife to one of Achilles' sons, Neoptolemus. The virgin priestess Cassandra felt Agamemnon, and Queen Hecuba was made a prisoner of Odysseus. Weren't the Greeks kind? There and back again. During the sacking of the city of Troy, the Greeks, in the hour of victory, committed many acts of destruction and cruelty, which called down upon them the wrath of the gods, for which reason their homeward voyage was beset with many dangers and disasters. Many perished before they even reached their native land. Nestor, Diomedes, Philoctetes and Neoptolemus, some of the generals of the Greek army, were among those who arrived safely in Greece after a fairly prosperous voyage. The vessel which carried Menelaus and Helen was driven by violent tempests to the coast of Egypt, and only after many years of weary wanderings and vicissitudes did they succeed in reaching their home in Sparta. Ajax the Lesser, not the Ajax that killed himself earlier in the tale, having offended Athena by desecrating her temple on the night of the destruction of Troy, was shipwrecked off Cape Caffarius. He succeeded, however, in clinging to a rock, and his life might have been spared, but for his impious boast that he needed not the help of the gods. No sooner had he uttered the sacrilegious words than Poseidon, enraged at his audacity, split with his trident the rock to which the hero was clinging, and the unfortunate Ajax was overwhelmed by the waves. Agamemnon, the cruel king, made it home to Mycenae after an uneventful voyage and back into the arms of his wife, Clytemnestra. However, Clytemnestra was still devastated about the sacrifice of her daughter Iphigenia, despite the fact she didn't die. Despite hoping that her reprobate of a husband would be killed in the war, she had still plotted against him with her lover, Aegisthus. As Agamemnon returned home, Clytemnestra prepared a warm bath for him to relax in. Grateful at this kind gesture, Agamemnon sank into it, closing his eyes. From behind her back, Clytemnestra pulled a net and threw it over her dozing husband, and from behind the door jumped Aegisthus, brandishing a knife. Held down by the net, Agamemnon didn't really stand a chance. He had survived ten long years of war, only to be killed in his own tub. Serves him right, really. And there we have it, the War of Troy. Truth or fiction? Myth or history? I doubt we will ever know, but I think you'll agree, it's a bloody good legend. And that brings us to the end of the first series of What You May Have Missed. How have you found it? If you want to let me know or ask any questions, you can always ping me an email at themythspodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me on at mythedpodcast. Hold on a minute, though, I hear you say. You've forgotten someone. What about Odysseus, the mastermind behind the horse? What happened to him? Did he get home? Or did he get killed? Well, 
his tale is for another day. <laughs>